would, take your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 2. We are working our way for the next many, many months through the book of Matthew. And so this morning, we're continuing with that Christmas story we sang about the three kings. We're going to see the story this morning in the book of Matthew and work our way through that. Before we read Matthew 2, 1 through 12, a couple of things up front. Number one, I want to make one blanket apology for the sniffles and sounding like I'm speaking out of the back of my throat, because I am. Sorry about that. It's just the time of year, so if I, instead of apologizing every time that I wipe my nose or sniffle, I figured I would just do it once at the beginning and cover, cover everything, and we'd be good. At the end of the service, after we finish our time of studying Scripture, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to have an opportunity to do that time of worship together at the end after studying Scripture. And then following the Lord's Supper, we'll have a final psalm. And during that final psalm, we'll also pass our offering plates. If you're a guest of ours, in the seat back in front of you, and then also as a tear-off option in that bulletin that you received when you came in, we would love to be able to know how we can serve you, how we can pray for you, even if this maybe feels like a one-time visit, if we could just reach out to you and, and pray and care for you, we want to be able to do that. And so when those offering plates go around during that final song, if you would put that guest card in there, that would mean a lot to us. Also, immediately following the end of our worship service, we have our annual holiday meal for our Emmaus Church family. You would need to have very good lunch plans to miss out on having lunch with us today. So unless you have something in the oven or you have a plan that you can't break, we would ask that you would stay and eat lunch with us. Just around the corner in our, our gym over here on the west side of the property, we have lunch. If you are a first-time guest, if you're a guest of ours, that lunch is free for you. Uh, for Emmaus families, it maxes out at $20. Um, you can feed your whole family, $5 per person, $20 for the family. Please stay and have lunch for, uh, with us. We would be honored to be able to do that. It's a good time to get to interact, meet people. You get a good meal, then you can go on your way. Equally, immediately after the lunch, we're going to do what is my family's favorite thing every year that we do as a part of our church. We go out in the community and we pass out meal bags in different areas and be able to, we're able to have conversations with people and serve together. And so we're going to do that together. So Number one, we're almost going to force you to stay and have lunch with us. And number two, we would love that you would be a part of that opportunity to serve our community and get to know some people this afternoon. So even if that was not in your immediate plans, we're going to put it in your plans uh, right, right now. So, all right, God's word, Matthew chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Mayus, we haven't taken time yet this morning as a church just to slow down and pray. Let's bow our heads. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to be so careful any time, but especially this time of year, about just going through the motions. God, guard our hearts and our minds this morning. One of the gifts of corporate worship is that it forces us to slow down, to, to focus our hearts and our minds on you. God, we do that together with one another, remembering that we are not in this alone. God, thank you for sweet preschoolers, their love for you, their, their love of being able to sing for their family. God, thank you for the gift of Advent, for families remembering the hope that we have in Christ and the joy that he brings. God, as we look at scripture right now, I pray that each one of us would feel the weight of your word, what it means to worship the king, the joy that comes from that. God, I pray that you would use this time this morning to shape us, shape us individually, shape us as a church. And God, over the next few minutes, we want to give ourselves fully to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to look at a verse as we start out here to try to get our minds around what Matthew is doing with the Christmas story, particularly in Matthew chapter 2. So the way that Matthew sets up his gospel is that chapter 1 is all about the people that Jesus came from. So Matthew is laying out, this is where Jesus came from biologically. This is where he came from in terms of his personal background. Chapter 2 is about geographically this is where Jesus came from. So these are Matthew's two concerns. He needs to orient Jesus as part of the people of God, going all the way back to Abraham, through David, up through Joseph and Mary. And then in chapter 2, he needs to explain how this minister of the northern part of Israel actually came from Bethlehem. He's got to make sense of this for the people, and so he's going to shape that. Here's what you need to know about Matthew chapter 2, though. Over the next two weeks, we are going to talk about the joy of Christmas, the hope and joy that comes when we understand what it means that Jesus came as king, and then next week, talk about the comfort of Christmas. Because one of the biggest challenges we run into at the holidays is how do you rejoice with those who rejoice, 
And how do you mourn with those who mourn? Because let's face it, sometimes at the holidays, your heart is so full of joy, so full of peace, so many good things have happened, and you're gathered around and you're trying to soak it up. Thank you, God, for where we are right now. And sometimes what you look like on the outside during the holidays doesn't actually match what's going on the inside. Sometimes the holidays can be the most difficult time for people. All of these memories, all of these emotions, maybe it's been a very hard year, all of this comes pouring back and and you're mourning so you want to look happy on the outside because you know you're supposed to, but inwardly you just feel like you're a mess. And so how do we do this? One of the gifts of the church One of the things that we are called to do as the people of God who follow Jesus is we should be the very best at rejoicing with those who rejoice. Not feeling jealous, but authentically saying, I am so happy for how God has been at work in your life. And then sometimes it seems like the very next minute we turn around and we are mourning with someone who mourns saying, I'm with you. I care for you. You're not alone. And at Christmas, the way Matthew sets up the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2 is he says, here's the joy of Christmas. Let me tell you about that. So we're going to talk about that this week. And then he's going to turn around and say, and I know it comes with a lot of pain. And there's comfort in the midst of the pain. Let's do those things together. So this week, joy of Christmas. Next week, second half of Matthew chapter 2, the comfort of Christmas. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Here's how it gets started. Now, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So Matthew's setting the scene. Jesus has already been born. And he says it happened in Bethlehem of Judea. Now this is only the second place that Matthew has mentioned in his gospel. The only other geographic location, the only other place that's been mentioned so far was Babylon. In the genealogy, he talked about how the people were sent away in exile to Babylon. So he mentioned that in chapter 1. That's the only place location we've gotten so far is Babylon. And then he turns around and he talks about Bethlehem. That's going to be important because what Matthew does in chapter 2 is he starts to set up these contrasts. And we'll look at them in just a minute. But it matters that the only place that he's mentioned so far is Babylon And now he turns around and mentions Bethlehem is where the birth was going to happen. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Herod was a bad man in a lot of respects. Um, Herod was a true politician because his dad was involved in politics And as the Romans were coming into power in the Holy Land, Herod figured out from his dad, the way you get into power is you play whatever side is in power at that point. And so Herod was infamous in the ancient world for changing sides. If this guy was in power, Herod was his best friend. If that guy got defeated, he never met that guy. He went over here to this guy, and he connected to him. And so he stayed in power by sticking to whoever was in power. And what happened was Herod ultimately became a puppet of the Roman Empire for all intents and purposes. He was their puppet governor king in the Holy Land. So Herod came into power in about 37 B.C., 
And when he came into power, one of the things he did is he began to build incredible structures all over the Holy Land. He developed the temple and built the temple into this incredibly beautiful structure. You can go to the Holy Land now and you can see some of the things that Herod built. He built these things because he wanted to develop goodwill with the people. He wanted them to like him. But he was also all the time worried that someone was about to take his throne. Uh, I don't know how tall Herod was, but you get the feeling he had little man syndrome. Like he was constantly, constantly concerned that somebody was going to come in and take power. So he would kill his wife. He would kill several of his kids. Anybody who looked like they were going to go the wrong way against him, he would step in and kill him. So he had great power, but he was also constantly caught up in conspiracy theories about who was going to come in and take power, who was going to take over, which is very important about what happens in the story. So, in the days of Herod the king, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Now, these wise men who come, the word for wise men is the word magi. Uh, so we, we hear magi, these magi that came. Who, who were these wise men? These wise men were often thought of as astrologers, as people who had some sort of divine power, but they would study the stars, they would study things that were going on, and through that they felt like that God was giving them directions. God was leading them in particular ways. And so were they kings? We've seen we three kings. I'll show you in a second where the phrase kings comes, comes from in the Bible. But they probably weren't kings. They were more like astrologers. They had pretty high social class. They were well-known figures. But they would study things, especially the stars, and feel like God was leading them or the gods were leading them to do particular things. And they came from the east. We don't know exactly where the wise men came from, but most likely... They came from Babylon. The reason, the reason we think they came from Babylon is remember that in the Old Testament, God's people, the Jews, they were sent into exile, and many of them were sent where? They were sent to Babylon. And so in Babylon, there grew up this huge Jewish community. And so if you have magi from the east who come looking for a Jewish king, it's going to make sense that they came from Babylon. That they came from a place where they studied these astrologies, they studied these different, uh, to us would seem like magic, but they also came with all of this Jewish background. So more than likely, they come from Babylon. Now we know that they come in the days after Jesus' birth. Jesus was born before Herod died. Herod died in 4 B.C., so that means that Jesus was most likely born in 5 B.C. or 6 B.C. It totally messes up our understanding of the calendar. Um, you watch that sweet little kids show, The Star, that came out last year, and it begins, and it says nine months B.C., and it's leading up. Eh, it's probably not right. Uh, Jesus was probably born in about 5 B.C. because we know that he was born before Herod died, and we know for sure that Herod died in the spring of 4 B.C. So Jesus was born then. The wise men, the magi, they show up at a later time, which means that if you come to our house and you look at one of our nativity sets, 
right next to where the nice wise men on the three camels come up to give Jesus, my wife always puts a card that says approximately two years later right next to the wise men. So we like to have the most historically accurate, biblically accurate uh, nativity set we can have. Yes, the wise men probably did not show up at the same time as the shepherds. They were coming at a later time. Uh, just to totally mess with our understanding of, of the Christmas story, when Mary gave birth to Jesus in a manger, that manger was probably not in a barn separated from the house. It probably took place in the house. They had the animals with them in the home, and the manger was a raised area off to the side of, of the house. And so, in our mind, here's three camels with three wise men showing up at the barn outside on the property. More than likely, Mary gave birth to Jesus inside the same house where the animals were, and the wise men came in at, at later time. But they show up, and they come to Jerusalem first. Why did they come to Jerusalem first? Because if there was going to be a king born, he was going to be born in the big city, in the place of power. And they've come, remember, seeking a king, and, and so they come to Jerusalem. So what Matthew is doing from the very beginning of his gospel is he's setting up these contrasts. I want you to see this slide because it kind of gives you an idea of what he's doing. He's setting up these contrasts. The first contrast he's setting up is between Babylon and Bethlehem. Because remember, the first two places he mentions in the gospel are Babylon and Bethlehem. Babylon is the place where God's people were sent in exile to. They were sent away. It was considered the enemy of the people of God. When you read the book of Revelation, at the end of the New Testament, Babylon and Rome are put together in your New Testament. These are places of power. These are places of worldly wealth and influence, but they're completely set against the things of God. Bethlehem is the backwater place. It's the small town. It's the blue-collar location. And so Matthew is setting up for us this this tension, this contrast between Babylon and Bethlehem. He also sets up a contrast between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Where did the wise men seek Jesus? In Jerusalem. If a king's going to be born, he's going to be born in the big city. He's going to be born in the place that you would expect, but he's not born, is he? There. He's born in Bethlehem. Again, the small town, the blue-collar place. What Matthew is doing is he's telling you the circumstances around Jesus' birth are going to tell you a lot about his ministry. Is Jesus going to minister with worldly power? Nope. Is he going to be rich in the things of the world? Nope. Is he going to try to center all of this political power around himself? Nope. He does his work in Bethlehem, not in Babylon or Jerusalem. He doesn't work in the way that we think power should work. He doesn't work in the same way that all the kings of the world work. And so Matthew is using this story to set that up. And then he's going to show us the difference between Herod and the Magi. He's going to show us the difference between how one group of people respond to Jesus and how the other group responds. So you go down in verse 2. And these wise men, they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star 
when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, I've told you several times through Matthew, and we'll look at it hundreds more. Matthew loves to make connections between the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus. And to understand what Matthew is doing with the star here, you've got to go back to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60 is tied in with Matthew chapter 2 and the reason Matthew emphasizes the star. Here's what Isaiah chapter 60 says. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. You can see where this is going to go. Verse 2. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. Think about the darkness of Herod and the darkness of the Roman Empire covering the earth at this time. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And then verse 3. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Okay, go back in your mind to Matthew chapter 2. What's happening Kings from other nations are coming to a star that proclaims a divine birth. What divine birth? The one prophesied in Isaiah chapter 60. And so why do we sing we three kings of Orient are? It's Isaiah chapter 60. They probably weren't kings. They were astrologers. They were workers. They were, they were in high social class, but they weren't kings. But they're called kings in Christian tradition because Isaiah chapter 60 points forward to what those wise men were going to do. They were going to come, and then look at what happens in verse 6 of Isaiah 60. They're going to bring gold and frankincense. Spoiler alert, Matthew chapter 2. What shows up? Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they're going to bring what? Good news and praises to the Lord. What do the wise men do in Matthew chapter 2 when they show up? They worship. And so Isaiah chapter 60, this beautiful prophecy about God's light breaking into darkness, everything that Matthew is doing in Matthew chapter 2 is tying those two pictures together. And so you go back to Matthew chapter 2, and in verse 3, it says, When Herod the king... Okay, Matthew is starting to poke at Herod at this point. <laughs> Herod the king, and Matthew wants you to say, oh yeah, is he really? Herod the king heard this. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod doesn't care if there's another king in another area, but he is constantly concerned about someone taking his own throne. What happens when people try to take Herod's throne, he has them killed. He takes out any opposition. And so why is all Jerusalem troubled in verse 3? They know when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Like when Herod gets mad, it causes trouble for everybody. This is the person in the house that when they're in a bad mood, everybody suffers from this. And so when Herod is in a bad mood, everybody in Jerusalem and Judea suffers because he's troubled. He, he feels like someone is coming in to take over his kingdom. What happens as a result of that? Verse 4. So assembling, Herod assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. So he's bringing in, this is our first sign in Matthew of the role that the Jewish religious leaders will play. He's bringing in the religious and legal officials. And he asked them where the Christ was to be born. 
And so in verse 5, they tell him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now just a quick, a quick uh, heads up here. Matthew, when he says something is written by a prophet, oftentimes he will combine prophecies. And so what he's going to do in the next verse is he's going to take part of a verse from Micah, chapter 5, and he's going to combine it with another part of a verse from 2 Samuel chapter 5. So he's, he's taking a Micah prophecy and a Samuel prophecy, and he's going to put them together in verse 6. And here's what it says. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. One thing I would point out to you from that quote that Matthew pulls, if you look at the end of it there, from you, from Bethlehem, from this area, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What kind of ruler did they have with Herod? A shepherd? No. No, no, they had a dictator They had someone who ruled by worldly political power and influence. What Matthew is doing is saying the ruler who will come will be a completely different type of ruler. He will rule as a shepherd. In fact, what kind of shepherd will he be? He will lay down his own life for the sheep. And so Matthew is setting up another one of these contrasts. You have a ruler. You don't want that ruler anymore, do you? No. God is sending another king, another ruler, and he will show you another way to rule as a shepherd who cares for his people and lays down his own life. And then, the missing verse between 6 and 7 is, and then the religious leaders went to Bethlehem to find Jesus. No, no they didn't. Because Matthew is setting up for us something that we're going to find throughout the gospel. Is these religious leaders know a lot about the stories of Jesus' coming, but they can't stand Jesus. And so there's this opposition that is set up between those, and watch this, this matters in Oklahoma in the 21st century. A group of people who know a lot about the scriptures, but constantly find themselves opposed to the one who brought the scriptures. John chapter 5, later on when Jesus is talking about these religious leaders, he says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Those verses right there, that's exactly what happens in Matthew chapter 2. Do the religious leaders know the verses? Yes, Do they know where the king is going to be born? Yes. Do they come to him? No. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, you're going to see this opposition build and build and build and will continue to build until ultimately it leads to the crucifixion. It's one thing, Emmaus, to have grown up in church, to own a Bible, to say, I know those stories. It's another thing to come to the king. And the story of Matthew's gospel is do I know what it is to worship the king 
or do I just carry around all this background from my childhood, all this knowledge in my head, but it's never take up residence right here in, in my heart. Verse seven, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Get, get in your mind like a back room deal. So Herod draws the wise men into a back room. Everything else has happened in public, but Herod's a true politician, so he needs to make a back room deal to figure out what happened so he can get in front of the situation. Verse eight, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. Why is that gonna be a funny phrase? Because there's gonna be a spotlight pointing at where the child is. There's no searching required. So Herod's like, if you guys can manage to figure this out, go and search diligently. And they're like, there's a star that's pointing right at him. I think we can, we can find him. Um, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You set on a throne of lies. You smell like beef and cheese. That's what, the, uh, that's what the wise men were saying at this point. Like, you are not a true king. You don't want to worship him. You want to destroy him. And yet he's saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to worship him. No, no, not a, not a chance. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Are they going to be persuaded by Herod's power and threats or are they going to choose to listen to the God of the universe? That's a good question, right? Are they going to be persuaded by the words of a powerful man or are they going to listen to the things of God? After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. A, a couple of things about the end of that verse that, that might be helpful. You think about your Old Testament. If you know some of those stories from how God guided his people in the Old Testament, he guided them with this pillar of smoke and then a pillar of fire by night. You get a very similar imagery here in Matthew chapter 2 to the way that the, God is guiding the wise men. Here's the other thing, and this may be helpful in your own life in some way. The way that God guides the wise men here is very similar to how he often works in our own lives. Not always, but often. Why do they go to Jerusalem first? It's because the star gave a very general idea of where Jesus was. So they know, hey, he's somewhere in this area. They're following the star. And as they get closer, then... God, through the use of this star, singles in on this is where the child is. Let me give you this as possible help. As you're trying to seek God's guidance in your life for whatever you're, you're facing, oftentimes his guidance is initially general and then it will become more specific. So if you will be faithful and you will follow me in the way that I'm leading you, I know it feels fuzzy. I know it feels far away, I know it feels general, but if you will begin to seek after me, if you'll follow this general direction, then over time it becomes much more specific. And I know that seems like an oversimplification, but if you're in the process of seeking God's direction in your life, I hope that would be helpful. 
you don't always from day one get, and this is exactly where you're going. Sometimes it's more, hey, head this direction, listen to my voice, follow my leading, and then as you begin to do that, God begins to say, and this exactly is where I'm leading you, and this is what I'm calling you to do. That's what he does with the wise men here. And then you get down to verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew is showing his Hebrew language background here. This was a style of writing where you just piled a bunch of the same word on top of itself to emphasize what you're saying. He is overwhelmed. They are overwhelmed with joy. This is what we've been aiming at this morning. The joy of Christmas. When you experience God's work in your life to guide you to the king. And so they have this joy that goes beyond anything they could have ever imagined. Did they find the joy in Jerusalem? No. They found the joy in Bethlehem, in the most least likely place. Did they find the joy with worldly power and influence? No. They found the joy with a small family and a young baby in a backwater location. So they have this joy. Here's the question this morning. What does it look like in your life, in our church, to experience the joy of Christmas? We're going to hone in on this. What does it look like to experience the joy of Christmas? Matthew does something in these final two verses where I know it doesn't show up well in English, but here's what he does in these final two verses. He gives three main verbs to show what the experience of joy looked like. And then if you geek out over grammar, to each of those verbs, he attaches a participle to describe what's happening with that verb. So most of you don't care, some of you love that. So it's always good to throw in grammar because it works out great. But here's the thing, here's the thing. Matthew is so intentional about this. What he has done in chapter two is he set the stage, set the stage, set the stage, Joy, big heading that says joy of Christmas. Okay, we want joy. How do we experience that? And then he gives three indications of how that happens. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Okay, the way that works in the original language is worshiped is the main verb Falling down goes with it. So worship is primary there. They worshiped him. How did they worship him? By falling down before him. Emmaus, how do you experience the joy of Christmas? By worshiping humbly. By worshiping humbly. True joy, true joy in life comes when we humbly worship the king of kings and Lord of Lords. We realize, right, that prideful worship is an oxymoron. Those words don't go together. There is no such thing as prideful worship. The only true worship is when we humbly lay ourselves before the Lord. Prideful worship says it's my preferences on my conditions, and really it's all about me. Humble worship says, it doesn't matter my circumstances, I'm going to lay myself down before the Lord. 
and my attention and my affections are given fully to him. Where do you find joy? When you lay down your life and you humble yourself before the king. That's where you find true joy. Everything, not, not everything, that's, that's, that's an overstatement. So many things around us during the week and in our lives seek to take away humble worship of the king. This Christmas, if your heart is hard toward the Lord, if you find yourself holding on to pride, I'll get my life together, I'm going to figure this out, I can do this, humble yourself before the Lord. These are three prominent, wealthy men and they fall down before a young child in worship. Worship is humbling. Worship says, I don't have my life together. I'm not in charge, but I know who is, and I will lay myself down before him. As a church, we have to ask ourselves, do we know what it is to worship humbly? Are we driven by our circumstances? Are we driven by our preferences? Or do we say, all I care about is giving myself fully to the Lord? Where do you find true joy in worship? Where do you find true joy in worship? When you love the music, that's great. It's, we, we want great music. Where do you find true joy, though, in worship? When you humble yourself before the king and your attention and your affections are put on him. Humble worship drives joy. Number two, after they fall down and worship him, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So number two, the main verb is offered. They gave. It's even the verb used other places for giving sacrifices. They, they offered these gifts by opening their treasures. Contrary, contrary to popular belief, the wise men were not trying to sign Mary up for their MLM uh, business here. So they bring these gifts, not because they're trying to sign, that was really good, and you guys didn't laugh at that, but um, they're not trying to sign Mary up for, for their business. They're coming, and they're opening their treasure box. When it says treasure here, think treasure box. They're opening their treasure box, and they're offering generously, sacrificially, joyfully, they're giving of what they already had been given. Everything we have is from God. Everything we have is for God. They say, this is the treasure I've been given. I'm going to open it up. Where do you find joy at Christmas? We tell our kids this all the time. Do you find joy by getting, getting, getting? Well, it's fun to get things. Let's not lie. It's fun to get things. But where does true joy come? When you give. I open, let's go through this real quick. I open my wallet. I open my schedule, and I open my home. When we open our wallet, when we open our schedule, and we open our home, and we say, this is what I've been given, I'm going to open it up. When we live closed-fisted, there's no joy in that. When we live open-handed, God, everything I have, I have because you've given it to me, I find joy when I'm able to give it away. Emmaus, I love you for this reason. 
I've never, and, and this is not an, exa- we, I exaggerate all the time probably as a preacher, but this is not exaggeration. I've never seen a church that gave the way you give in terms of this is what we have, we're going to give it away. If we can give it to serve others, we're going to give it to serve others. Open my wallet, open my schedule, open my home. I'm going to open my treasure and give because that's where we find joy. So we worship humbly. We give generously or openly. Finally, verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The main verb there is departed or the word for go. How did they go? As they were warned. They were given divine direction about where to go and they went. Where do you find joy at Christmas? When you obediently go where God calls you to go. Sometimes that is in your neighborhood. Sometimes that is to another country. Sometimes that is God's calling your family to pull up stakes and do something else. Where do you find joy? When you worship humbly. When you give generously. And when you say, God, my life is yours. You've given it to me. You can guide me wherever you want, and I will go. God is a church. We will go where you call us to go. Now, that's one thing to say at 1131 on a Sunday morning. That's another thing to say when God says, go. I'm calling you to go here and do this. Do you know how you're able to go obediently? Here's the kicker. You've already worshiped humbly and you've already given generously. When you are worshiping humbly, God, you're God, I'm not. I give myself fully to you. Everything I have, I'm ready to give away. At that point, you just go because your heart is already ready to do that. What are we gonna do well as a church? We're gonna seek to worship humbly. We're gonna seek to give generously, and we're gonna seek to go obediently. How are we gonna do that? Well, here in about 90 seconds, we're going to start taking the Lord's Supper. We are going to worship humbly as a church together before the one who gave his life for us. And then we're going to give generously through giving our praise and song, through giving our offerings, through turning in those prayer cards. And then we're going to go. We're going to go out into our community this afternoon and we are going to give of what we've been given to share the love of Jesus. How do you experience joy? Let's, let's say this Christmas, you are eaten up with despair. If you were pulled open, your heart is cold and you are not excited about Christmas. Where do you find joy? Humble worship, generous giving, obedient going. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace in our lives. God, thank you for the story of Matthew 2. There's so much that you have packed in here by the work of your spirit. God, help us as we think about our own hearts. Help us not to say, well, I'll worship if they do things the right way or I'll worship if I feel like it. God, help us just to come before you humbly today. We may come into this room and we've got all kinds of junk going on and we're struggling. God, I pray that if there are people here this morning, God, 
Maybe specifically if there are men here who have wealth and they have influence and they are carrying a lot of pride, God, that they for the first time would humble themselves before the King of kings and Lord of lords and they would find true joy and salvation. God, help us to be a generous people because we know that you have given everything for us. And God, help us to go as you lead us. Father, right now, as we prepare our hearts to take of the Lord's Supper, God, may we do this reverently. May we do this remembering the hope and salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.